CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there, welcome to Coindesk TV. You are watching The Hash, where we hash out the day's news in the world of crypto culture and get to some of the big ideas that animate all the crazy things that are always happening in this industry. We just love you're here. Thanks for being here. I'm Zach Seward. That's Adam Levine. We've got Jen Sanasi and Will Foxley. We're going to toss it straight to Jen, I guess, for an update on this Binance Wazer X spat over in India. What's going on? Well, the saga continues, Zach. So according to a blog post published by Binance, WazRx can no longer use Binance's wallet services. The post says that the Indian exchange has made false and misleading statements about Binance's control over WazRx user assets. And because of this, the company has until today to remove funds from accounts that they used for WazRx operations. WazRx tweeted, I think two or three hours ago, that they have initiated the process of transferring assets to multi-sig wallets which they expect to be fully completed within the next few hours. Will, I'm going to toss this off to you. We've been chatting about this saga on the show for the last couple of weeks. Finally, it looks like it's come to a head. What did you make of this blog post this morning? Yeah, I've been kind of waiting for this, right? We've been following the story on the hash for quite a while. And it's important, right? Binance has a lot of different exchanges built on top of it. That's something that we've kind of followed along with the story and learned about along the way. And then WazRx, it's part of this basket of crypto exchanges in India that has been impacted not only by a downturn in crypto markets, but also by the Indian government moving against crypto exchanges pretty heavily. So we had like a few tax laws that went into operation last year, some anti-money laundering things as well. And, you know, it has been favorable to be a crypto entrepreneur in India the last 12 to 18 months because they've been basically thrown under the bus in a lot of instances. And this is tough for the Wazir X entrepreneurs and builders of that exchange. They chose to build on Binance. And at the end of the day, Binance is the heavy gorilla in the room, right? And they're going to start smashing other people if they can. We saw that in a somewhat similar instance with FTX, right? Where FTX and uh, Binance were going at each other and Binance won that. I mean, that's one way to interpret the whole saga. Obviously, FTX was also fraudulent. So there's that very heavy component of it. But it is fair to say that Binance and FTX were going after the same market share and Binance won out. And so if we have these other little exchanges that are built on top of Binance, it's not odd to think that Binance is going to start smushing them. They're going to get that market share. They're going to start pushing down on their volumes. 
As for Wazir X, seems like this probably wasn't the best idea to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with CZ when you're building on top of his infrastructure. That didn't seem to be a very smart play. Luckily, they are able to get all these assets off the exchange, and hopefully Wazir X can reboot in a different fashion and really use its own technology stack to service Indian crypto buyers. Adam, I'll throw it up to you. Yeah, I think this is also a continuation of another story, which is that India is a difficult market to actually be building these types of things in. Whether you're talking about the infrastructure that's required in order to do it, which is really what the story is about here, or you're talking about the kind of shifting sands on which the regulatory regime is currently being built, mostly, again, feels like we get rumors of what's going to happen, and then very little actually happens. And when it does, it tends not to be a very good choice. Again, like you look at many of these nations that are outside of the U.S., and then have significant capital controls placed to keep capital essentially within the country. Cryptocurrency presents really iffy problems for them, presents competition in ways that they're typically not really willing to accept. And so that means that if you can't stop the, the actual blockchains itself, you can go after the businesses. And so that is another kind of weakness, another real difficulty that uh, companies like this wind up having here. So not a good time to be building one of these things. I expect that's going to be a trend that continues over the course of the next couple of years. Zach? And you see it among Indian crypto users, right? The vast majority of Indian crypto users are buying sort of offshore, right? Whether that's in China, other Asian markets, it's not happening in India. You see this uh, pretty harsh tax regime that people have responded to there, where sort of it has the effect where national regulators in seeking to impose control and seeking to impose, you know, protection standards for their own country, they ultimately end up pushing a lot of that activity outside of their regulatory purview. And I think it's something that we sort of saw with the FTX story in a lot of regards, right? Ultimately, those countries that had some regulatory regimes and some regulatory guardrails around these FTX businesses that were operating in their country, FTX Japan, FTX US come to mind. Those are the ones that tended to be in better shape in the bankruptcy process relative to FTX.com, the parent company itself. So it is something I think, you know, you see it probably most pronounced in the Indian situation where like the, the attempt to support, regulate and harness this activity ultimately becomes a bit too controlling and that activity goes elsewhere. And sometimes people get burned by it badly when things blow up outside of those national borders. So just a reminder, I think about a global technology in the national context can lead to some pretty interesting ripple effects. And I think, you know, in India, we keep seeing this time and time again. Will, I saw your hand. I'm tossing to you. Yeah, I think the India angle here is really important. I'm glad that we followed up with the story a few times. I do want to turn back to Binance, though, and just talk about them buying up the market share for crypto exchanges. I think there is a real race to the bottom in terms of which exchanges are going to win during the bear market, especially. Right now, there's a lot of exchanges that have gone defunct. They've either been out as frauds, they don't have the right technical tools, or they just can't get users in the way that Binance and others have been able to do. Since 2019, Binance has really grown to now, as of like basically today, it's about 60% of both spot and derivative volume for all crypto exchanges. I mean, that's a huge surge in popularity for the exchange. In just four years' time, right? There's other exchanges that are far older, but they've basically disappeared or stopped growing entirely. Like one exchange that we've talked about a few times on the show is Poloniex. And Adam, you've already had a few thoughts on that uh, in, in past shows, right? Where they were the big exchange during 2017. They're basically gone. I mean, they've tried to have some sort of reboot. We've had some discussions about them here and there, but they're not really there anymore. Binance continues to eat up other exchanges. And the fact that they're able to take out an exchange like WazirX, that just might mean that they get more customers onto their user base. That's something that we talked about in our last story as well with WazirX is the fact that CZ has been inviting all these Indian exchange customers to move on to Binance itself. 
So to me, that's a big storyline here. Race to the bottom in terms of centralized exchanges. But let's pivot and actually stay with Binance and CZ, but away from Wazir X. Let's talk about this new blog post from CZ that came out this morning. It's a thrilling read. I think everyone should go read it and not just listen to our dialogue about this story. But basically, CZ threw out his rules for an exchange, saying that he's a really, really boring guy, quote unquote there. Really, really boring guy. He talks about how he only has conversations for 15 minutes or less. He leaves group chats in the middle of them because he doesn't want to be bothered by notifications. <laughs> and he reads books while he's in the shower. He listens to them while he's on the toilet. He listens to them while he's in the airplane. He reads about a book a week. There's a lot of interesting information here about a guy who's built an exchange that is now uh, really a titan in the crypto industry in less than five years. Zach, up to you. Lil Foxley, I believe you accused me of simping CZ the other day, and I'm here to clap back <laughs> so hard on you for this choice of story. I didn't there. The uh, level of simping of CZ in that intro was mm -hmm. immense. This is great. This is standard <laughs> tech fodder content. Wow, I'm a tech why do you genius think I and it up? I exit chats and oh my, this is this is how I do it. This is great. It's a nice little personal glimpse at how this man organizes his work life and even his personal life, and I appreciate it. But anyway, I'm just here for the clapback. I'm gonna leave now. Wow. I'm gonna pass it to Jen. Is there any insights in this productivity hack post that you see outside? of you know, the obvious, the obvious here. Yeah. First of all, this is hilarious, Will. I also was like, well, why this? But okay, here we go. Uh, the communication tips part, I actually respect. He has like a whole blog post that he sends to people and says, this is how to communicate with me. And if you didn't get a response, this is why I think that's better than no response. But let's get to some of the fun stuff in this. CZ is not experiencing any kind of culinary delight. And that makes me sad. He says when he goes to restaurants, he orders one of the first three things he sees on the menu and he never goes for any kind of dining that is outside of like really quick, a really quick eating experience. This sounds like a sad life. And let's just say, like he says he doesn't spend time on communicating with people and, and doing anything fun, but I bet he spends a lot of time writing these blog posts and arguing with people on Twitter and lobbying crypto users to go over to Binance. And that's what he's spending his time on now. And maybe that's what he's going to spend his time on. But Zach, I, I don't know. You got something No, else? I'm going to take it from Zach. <laughs> Allow me this moment for 30 seconds. <laughs> I brought this story up not to simp for CZ. He doesn't need it. He has all the money in the world. Sure, I brought this sure. story up because it is just the classic cliche that we see with all these tech stories, right? And I wanted to throw that to you guys. I was throwing to you like just like, great story you can rip into and be like, this guy is faking it or this guy is just appeasing to his audience. And yet you turn the guns on me. Zach, over to I you. Will, <laughs> I will graciously <laughs> embrace that olive branch. Thank you, Will. Uh, the one piece that stood out to me, I think it's real. I mean, I think I've talked, you know, I think I've spoken with CZ on a number of occasions. I think he's uh, a real straightforward communicator. I have no reason to believe this is fake. Sure, maybe it's a PR stunt. So, hey, he's, just, he's a tech founder just like our tech founders. Wow. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Amazing. What a guy. I get that. The one thing that stood out to me that I thought was funny and harkened back to other relatively famous crypto founders was the clothing thing, right? Where he buys in bulk, hates shopping. He gets the thing that he knows he likes, and he gets like 10 of each of those things. And that reminded me of Sergey from Chainlink, who famously did the same thing and became a meme mm. in the Link community you know, that he always has a particular plaid shirt. He always has the particular pants and the particular shoes because that is sort of an indicator of 
efficiency and uh, serious <laughs> mindedness that he cannot be bothered to think about what the wardrobe is going to be because he has the one that works the best and he goes to that every time. So that was a commonality that I saw and that was the one thing that stood out to me. But Adam, I got to toss it to you. I got to get your take on this. Yeah, just a, just a quick thought here. I mean, when you're looking at someone like CZ, you have to compare it against the other folks who have kind of come before, as Will was sort of alluding to, like, this is a pretty classic trope, effectively, of the person, you know, the business person who's only focuses on the business to which anything else is either education to make the business, you know, uh, something that's more successful, uh, or it's a distraction, essentially. And, you know, you can kind of see the, the curve of this, like the early, you know, Google founders were really the same way. And so I think that it's an interesting reality that we exist in where the appearance of a person and sort of the image that they put forward winds up being arguably almost as important as many of the business uh, characteristics of the business that they actually build because they kind of become the avatar for that thing. And so what I'm most interested in, honestly, is not what CZ looks like today when he is arguably at the height of power. He could have more success in the years to come. But again, as uh, Will alluded to, I think history suggests that he will rise and then he will decline. Uh, and the companies that he's created are likely to do the same. Maybe that won't happen, but it would be basically a first time we've ever seen it in crypto. So I'm more interested in understanding, okay, so this is the peak or something that's close to the peak. What does he look like in three years? What changes at that point? Because it was a pretty big fall from grace that we saw from SBF. You know, uh, Alex Mashinsky was another example of this. And I suspect that that's not the last. And also, uh, Will, just to say, <laughs> I think that when we're talking about any of these exchanges right now, they are alleged frauds, not frauds at this point. But with mm -hmm. that uh, semantic argument, back to you, Zach. I mean, I like the lifestyle blogs. Like, I will say that Vitalik also had a really good travel <laughs> blog one time about he like detailed with precision how he packed his something like 40 liter backpack that he lived out of for many months at a time. So please, crypto founders, lifestyle blogging such as this, it is an interesting window into the minds of people who are building uh, relatively prominent things in this world. So yeah, let's see, let's see more of these. We could, we could do a whole crypto founder lifestyle corner in which we unpack some of the canonical texts relating to management style and lifestyle choices from some of these folks. It's going to be a good one. Jen, what do you think? Zach, that's exactly what I was going to say. So <laughs> I was going to pitch the lifestyle corner for the hash. So Will, back to you for final thoughts. Wow, this is like a 180 <laughs> from the beginning of the conversation. First, I'm being called a simp, and now you guys want to make a, a whole segment about it. I don't really know. Yeah. It makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's okay. Sorry for calling you out. I apologize. Accept my apology, sir. All right. Next up, Russia's largest bank known as Spurbank reportedly has a proprietary DeFi or decentralized finance platform in closed testing right now and says that it'll be opening it up to the public on March 1st. That's all according to Russian news agency Interfax. The timing on this is interesting, but perhaps unsurprising, as Russia, never a huge fan of decentralized protocols, at least at the federal level, is quickly approaching a full year of major sanctions put in place by the U.S. and its allies following the invasion of Ukraine. So... You can see how they would get to DeFi, at least uh, some of the way. So uh, let's see. I think this is more a messaging story than anything else. Uh, Jen, why don't we kick this off to you first? Yeah, well, it's good you brought up the sanctions because that was my first question here. How can we think about this story as it relates to the sanctions in Russia? And also, my second question is, how can you have a proprietary DeFi platform? Well, I'll just respond to that real quick. Uh, so I think that as far as the sanctions go, this is alternative infrastructure, right? 
effectively many of the sanctions utilize or weaponize, depending on who you want to uh, listen to there, uh, sort of the U.S.-led financial order, including notably the SWIFT interbank messaging system. Uh, that was a major disruption about a year ago when those went into place, caused major problems across the country. Now, not so much. Now they appear to have already created some additional rails in the traditional system. Uh, so they're able to continue trading with nations who have chosen not to, uh, to align themselves with the sanctions that have been put in place. And DeFi, you know, is another way to kind of accomplish that goal. This isn't happening at the federal level, but given that it's Russia, again, when you start talking about the largest bank in the country, you're effectively talking about something that implicitly has support from the regime, uh, if nothing else. Uh, Will, I'll kick it over to you for further thoughts. Yeah, proprietary is my favorite word in crypto because what it really means is just copy pasting open source software and then adding a few Thank tweaks you. and then calling it your own. <laughs> so that's basically what's going on here. As, as you see in the article, they even talk about like having their own version of MetaMask to be able to connect to it. Uh, they're doing a first launch in March and then a follow-up in May. And I think it's just like what Adam talked about. Like This is new, this novel, it's proof of concept for a bank to work within the crypto ecosystem. And maybe it has something to do with sanctions, maybe not. Probably too early to tell. That being said, this is a huge pressure point for uh, Russian banks right now, right? They don't have the ability to exchange internationally, except for with a few countries that the US and its allies have really put pressure on, so like Iran and China. Uh, and can DeFi really be a vehicle for moving money? Like maybe, like stable coins are definitely a thing. I don't think you're gonna be using USDC necessarily to be able to transfer uh, Russian assets around the globe, but there might be other assets that you can move uh, and DeFi might be a good place for that to occur. I think for DeFi itself, this is like a good story. Uh, it's tough in some ways because you don't want to see like Russia using Ethereum necessarily as like a headline. But to be frank, that's where all this stuff should be going, right? If it's decentralized finance, that means it's a neutral platform for whoever to use it, even if you don't like that person. And that's something I think a lot of these DeFi founders who have been building this open source software are going to have to come to grips with. I think a lot of the early Bitcoiners did understand that. And that's why you see a lot of stuff going on with ordinals right now. That's why you see a lot of pressure in the Bitcoin community to keep things small, keep things focused, keep things agile. In DeFi, there's more of this, hey, let's have fun, let's build stuff, let's see what we get. And when you have large actors that the US government and others don't like using it, well, you might find yourself in a pickle. Zach, up to you. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, I guess I want to remove it from the geopolitical context and just from a business context. I know it's probably impossible to remove this particular story from its geopolitical context, but hey, let's do it, right? If you're a banking executive looking at the, I guess, the long-term trend of what DeFi potentially offers, which is like bank-like services on the internet where you just interact with a smart contract and don't have to have a business relationship, in corporate innovation cycles, you see people try to co-op some of that energy and harness it to productive ends as it relates to you, the incumbent business. So again, removing this particular one from its geopolitical context, makes a ton of sense for a bank to at least be exploring these things. And I think more banks should be exploring these things. We've seen banks explore the custodying of people's digital assets, making it much more convenient and friendly for people to store their Bitcoin and other assets within their bank account. We've seen fewer experiments, I think, around what a proprietary DeFi application in the banking context could look like. But I think it's smart and we should potentially see more of that come out down the line, maybe two, three, four years from now. But Adam, I saw your hand and I also saw Jen, so I'm going to toss to you and then down to her. Yeah, I'll be quick. I think that the point is very well made. Once you take the geopolitical kind of part of it out of it, which is obviously the area where I tend to focus, you know, what you're looking at here is an interesting combination of the traditional banking system and sort of the new, uh, what we assume in some cases will be the evolution of the banking system. 
And as a result of that, it does seem like ultimately, if you're a bank today, especially if you're a larger one, the thing that you really want to be within the next 10 years is MakerDAO, right? Like you want to be one of these effectively, you know, like bank-like protocols that will allow you to continue to make money off of the services you already provide, even as many of your competitors are undercut. And it's interesting to think about that in the context of Russia, because again, like any nation outside of the U.S. seems like they're probably going to be doing that before the U.S. is, just given the reticence that we see from kind of Washington uh, and the regulatory class. But for final thoughts, down to you, Jen. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add to what Zach was saying. If we take this out of the geopolitical situation and we look at how banks are reacting to crypto in North America, it's the complete opposite, right? They're pulling back from crypto products. They're pulling back on crypto services because of what's going on. And it's interesting to see this bank all the way in Russia, you know, playing with DeFi. And it helps understand how banks should be looking at it. I think, you know, if this wasn't in Russia, a lot of banks over here might be looking at this and, and thinking, wow, we should be experimenting this from a business perspective because our customers might want something like this. And if they don't, we may discover some pain points they have where we can create a solution for them. And so, yeah, Zaki, thank you for removing that uh, geopolitical scenario from this story to bring us uh, to a high level. But who has the last story? I think it's you, Zach. I do. We're going to go talk about eBay. eBay, the original place for tchotchkes online, bought <laughs> an NFT marketplace not long ago, and now they're making a hiring push for said NFT marketplace, which is notable. And I think the question is, can a longtime incumbent sort of revive its brand with some of that Web3 stuff that we heard so much about a couple of years ago or whenever that was, a year ago, before everything hit the fan. But anyway, this is happening in the face of some pretty significant layoffs uh, across the sector. And to have a few posts here, uh, I guess, indicates that eBay is at least tepidly interested in growing out this product. Will, what are you thinking about this one? you think eBay can uh, ride the Web3 wave? I don't know. I, I keep seeing these stories, like all these startups built these NFT marketplaces and then they went kaput within like a year. And then all these larger brands have been stepping in, gobbling them up, right? So we had the Amazon Web3 story the other day. They're hiring like a community manager. They're hiring some like data scientists to be able to build their Web3 product. We've seen other companies do this as well over the last year. And I just, I don't know where it goes. Uh, Coinbase, I think is a really good analog story here, right? They're, they're really traditional in terms of crypto, but they're also public and they have exposure to a lot of the traditional finance world right there. And their NFT product has not really done that well, right? So I always look at that as sort of like the worst case scenario for the Ebays of the world or the Amazons of the world building out a Web3 product. Coinbase already did this. It took them a while to get there because corporations are a little slower than startups. And when they got there, it was already dead. So that's how I always see these things. I'd love to be wrong because, yes, we want more Web3. Yes, Jen, we want more NFTs in the world. But I don't know, I'm kind of bearish on it. Adam, over to you. Yeah, I think if we draw back the lens a little bit on this one, there's two important points from my perspective. The first is that eBay is the definitive platform where if you want a physical tchotchke uh, that somebody else owns, that's where you're going to go. Like, it's been around for a long time. I don't think that, I mean, there are lots of competitors out there who offer similar services, but as far as like, what's the, the kind of elephant in the room, it remains eBay, even if they're not quite what they were at one point. So it makes complete sense for them to be making this play uh, because the, the effectively NFTs right now, we kind of think of them as art or game assets or whatever, but really what they are, broadly speaking, is the digital reinvention of tchotchkes. 
in a way that can be transferred in ways that they just couldn't have been beforehand. So it makes a ton of sense from that perspective for them to have done it and for them to continue to make investments into this. And that's the second part of this is just like we see, you know, Facebook, now Meta, just burning ridiculous piles of money, you know, like sacrificing it to the gods of innovation. Effectively, I think we could see the same thing here with eBay. eBay doesn't need this to work for like five years, right? If they burn money for the next five years and then five years later, NFTs are actually a meaningful thing going into the mainstream beyond some of the speculative mania that we've seen over the course of the last couple of years and what we're likely to see for the next couple of years, well, that's still a good choice for them. And I think it's actually a much safer choice for them than what Meta is doing, trying to make virtual reality and metaverses and kind of all of that stuff a thing. Like they both definitely could work and they're the same type of bet. But if I was going to invest in one of these things, I would actually be betting more on eBay pulling this off with NFT marketplaces broadly than I would with, you know, all of the technological hurdles and challenges and user interface issues that are going to come with what Meta has to accomplish for their bet to have been correct. So, (laughs) you know, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, Who wants it next? Zach? I give it to Jen. Last word. I'll go quickly. Does anyone use eBay anymore? I'm sorry to say, I think eBay is cool and this is a safe bet for them, Adam. But I don't know if people use eBay. I think they've almost been displaced by like the Facebook marketplaces and the like, I don't know, bartering websites of the world. I think the winner in NFTs is going to be whoever is able to attract the intellectual property. But Zach, we have to go. So close us off. That's it. Bye. (laughs) Happy Friday. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.